0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with AdvantageGo's underwriting platform. Today's guest is Adrian Jones. He's one of the smartest people in the insurance sector, and I'm really lucky to have been able to spend time talking to him fairly regularly over the course of the last few years. I first got to know him just as the whole insurtech movement started to really take shape in around 2016 to 2017. And ever since that time, he's always been open and honest about the way he appraised the new wave of technological investment sweeping through the industry. He never lost his critical faculties and never got caught up in the hype that defined part of that era. But that doesn't mean he's a sceptic either. He's actually quite a rare animal, an enthusiastic but realistic adopter and promoter of better ways of doing the business of insurance. Today's episode is one I'm really pleased with, because it does the job of a podcast properly. Over the years, I've had many enlightening conversations with Adrian, just like the one you're about to hear. But up until now, I'd never recorded one. So prepare yourself for a masterclass in what the smart money thinks about the state of insure tech. Embedded insurance, insure tech bubbles, whether they existed and whether they have now burst, how the hard reinsurance market will affect startups, and even the very logic of the phrase insure tech itself – are all addressed in the discussion. I'll wager you'll get more benefit from listening to Adrian for 45 minutes than you will from attending any three-day InsurTech conference. Enjoy the podcast. Adrian, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Good to speak to you again, Mark. You work at Hudson Structured within that group. Tell us all about what you're doing. You're working on the InsurTech side with HSCM Ventures. Tell us all about it and where that fits in with Hudson and how you're getting involved in that whole tech food chain, where you play in that ecosystem.
1: So Mark, happy to tell you about what we do. I have to say it a little bit precisely here. So the description is we are the venture capital strategy of Hudson Structured Capital Management Limited, which is a Bermuda-based alternative asset manager with about $3.5 billion in AUM and committed capital. Here at HSCM Ventures, we seek venture stage equity investments across the global economy that have a nexus with insurance and risk management. So we're looking for opportunities broadly that are connected with insurance. The great thing is, insurance is a really broad field. So it's relevant to payments, lending, consumer, B2B, SaaS, prop tech, AI, data analytics, cyber, crypto, health tech, the gig economy, and numerous other areas of innovation. In terms of who we are, we're five people, we all have some sort of background in the insurance business, life and health PNC brokerage, and we're supported by HSCM's teams in legal, accounting, finance, compliance, investor relations, etc.
0: And obviously, what was your background age and your previous encounter you were at score? So, how would you describe yourself to other insurance folk?
1: I tell people I was 10 years doing consulting and 10 years in the reinsurance business and then joined Hudson Structured 2 years ago. When I was in consulting, that's how I fell into the business. I was told to go get on a train and go to Princeton, New Jersey, and ask for a particular person at a particular office there. And right. People who know Princeton know know what this is. And so that's how I kind of fell into it. I then was head of strategy at Renaissance Re for six years, went through the acquisition of platinum underwriters with them, then went to Paris and was head of strategy and business development at SCORE, working with Victor Pignet and then Jean-Paul Conascente and Sylvie Van Viette. While I was there, I set up Score C Ventures that's now led by Will Thorne. But Will and I set that up and ran it through the first fund. And then, as I said, came over
0: here about two years ago to HSCM Ventures. When you say venture stage, what do you mean by that? And obviously, that's beyond seed stage. Seed stage is where you're getting a whole lot of college kids who don't really know how to do a business plan and you're kind of scrubbing them up, making them presentable and that kind of thing. This is a bit beyond that. This is now a business. So you're looking to invest in tech businesses that are already happening, right? They're already businesses.
1: Maybe, maybe not. Everybody gets their first dollar from somewhere. And there are a lot of people that don't have a lot of dollars in their bank account because they don't come from that sort of money or whatever. And they might seek venture capital very early on when they just
0: have an idea on a piece of paper or a napkin. So people can bug you with ideas. Presumably, if if they're already insurance people, they already know how to run insurance businesses, and they've got a more technological idea, then they can still tap you up, even if they haven't got a single dollar yet.
1: Well, and a lot of people look to venture capital because there's a couple of functions that we can do. We can help to validate business models. So we've seen a lot of different businesses and we have entrepreneurs who approach us and say, I have this idea. What do you think of the idea? Because I'm thinking of giving up my life to pursue this thing. Is that a good idea or not? And we'll give feedback on things like that. Other times, people will come to us very early on and say, I've got an idea, but I need a co-founder. I need someone who really knows the tech. And We can try to put two people together in order to launch a business. Some venture capitalists will even help to incubate a business. So they'll say, great, come to our office and you can have those three desks over there and you can work with our lawyers to get things set up. And we will help to make introductions to customers, vendors, etc. So there's a lot of functions that venture capital can potentially provide at the very early stages beyond just a dollar or a pound yeah and so when i say venture stage i'm referring to basically anything which is relevant to venture capital as opposed to private equity or public markets investing or debt or other
0: forms of investing and what's your view on incubation sounds like you're open to it because i had mike millet on the show earlier in the year and what's so amazing about the hudson group is that you seem to be all the way through the value chain you can do all sorts of things so again if you're working with someone Does it mean that because you've got balance sheets, you've got licenses, you've got all sorts of things, are those on the table, can you make someone an appointed representative or that kind of thing? Is that sort of part of the package with you guys?
1: Hudson has several different investment strategies and several different areas of focus. I focus on a particular area to the extent that we can be helpful across the needs of an entrepreneur or the needs of a company Then I can certainly make introductions to my colleagues. Yeah. When we think about incubation, we're thinking about something generally very early stage, helping to form the corporation, the company, helping to develop the product, helping to get the right team around in order to develop and sell the product, helping to make introductions with new potential customers. That is what I think of as incubation. Obviously, we can help make introductions to reinsurers, to fronting companies, to other folks like that. But it's generally more on an introduction basis, opening up our Rolodex rather than a formal sort of program.
0: So it sounds like you're a bit more active than just someone who just gives you money and says, get on with it and show me my returns. From the
1: entrepreneur's perspective, I think it depends on what they're looking for and what they need. Some entrepreneurs have a really good sense of what they're going to do. They really know the insurance business and they just want to get on with it. And in that case, then we try to be supportive from the sidelines. In other situations, there are entrepreneurs who have a really good idea, but perhaps it's tangential to insurance or it touches insurance or insurance is important to it, but it's only a portion of what they do. And then in that case, we might become insurance experts that they can call as and when needed. And then, of course, there are other situations where there's a particular value that we think we can add and we'll try to work a lot more closely with those entrepreneurs for some period of time.
0: Well, Adrian, you're one of the smartest people I know, and you're one of the people I always go to when I want to get a flavor of what's happening in the insure tech world, particularly given your background that you went through, even a little slice of it, you know, high-end consulting, Renry, Score, and now Hudson. You're talking at the very high end of the IQ of our industry. What's happening in the insure tech world? Is it right to say we've been through some kind of a bubble, a bit like all the tech, and obviously we had that massive risk on very low or zero interest rate environment, seem to encourage everything even more, put more fuel on the fire? Now we're in this slightly risk-off, we're seeing layoffs at really the sort of household name of tech every week now. Where are we at the moment in terms of insure tech, this sort of enthusiasm from investors on a scale of one to 10? Where are we?
1: This word insure tech is one that we need to reconsider. <laughs> Because the term was coined in 2015 by people from largely outside the industry yep. who discovered insurance and discovered that we have major needs for digitization in this industry, that it's a very large industry, 7 trillion or whatever Swiss Re says it is today. So they saw this enormous market that had a shortage of technically qualified people in it that had enormous needs and that they thought could be disrupted. And There were a number of businesses which were funded, and in retrospect, in the clarity now, you probably did see some bubbliciousness in (laughs) those fundings. Some of these companies are down by 95 to 98% since their peak valuations. I started writing about a lot of this in 2017 when they first started publishing statutory filings and saying, it looks like there are potentially some issues that people are going to have to work through. And I think the companies are trying to work through those issues, but it's not until after valuation went way up and then came way back down. So what happened, you know, you had a bunch of low interest rates, as you pointed out, that pushed investors to the very extreme edges of the risk spectrum. You had founders and investors who didn't really understand how our industry actually operates. You had SPACs that had misaligned incentives to help take companies public. Uh, And of course, just a general euphoria. So the people who are saying now that insuretech is dead, totally failed, just right off the whole sector. Those are the same people who only discovered the sector in 2015. The people who have been around for a while and who have seen it through multiple cycles, including multiple tech cycles, but also multiple insurance cycles, say... Nobody in insurance is sitting back and saying, you know, that whole digitization thing, like it just didn't work. We're going to go back to having papers and fax machines and walking around (laughs) Lime Street with giant bundles in our hands. Now, there might be a couple of old people somewhere in the very back of some building on Lime Street that are saying that, but the world is moving on. Insurers are continuing their digitization efforts. They recognize the importance of this. They recognize the need to be more efficient in their operations, to work down expense ratios, to make their distribution more effective, and to provide better data and information from the start to the finish of the risk transfer transaction chain. That's not changing. In fact, it's only growing. And I think that's why we need to retire this term tech. Like tech was a word from 2015 to 2021, maybe 2022. And we just need to retire it and say, this is insurance digitization or it's insurance whatever. But the fact of the matter is it is going on just as much as it ever has. Well, I'm very
0: glad you say that, Adrian, because I remember when I was editor of a prominent magazine and we had the idea of thinking, well, we better do an insuretech conference because it's so much stuff is happening around that 2015, 2016 time. And I was thinking, well, how long is this going to last for? How much should we invest in this? Because how long is it before it just becomes insurance after year five, year six? For me, it surprised me that it went on as long as it did. So you're the first one to call the death of InsurTech, but long live insurance, digitizing and just modernizing and doing good stuff. So on that scale, back to the scale of 1 to 10, well, ice cold and boiling hot, where are we? So we sound like we're more kind of Goldilocks, just right. Is about right? I mean, do you think there's funding available for the right sort of ideas for things that are not going to come out with some daft ideas about disrupting everything?
1: On a 1 to 10 scale, with 10 being hot, I'd say we were at 1 until about 2014. And I'd say we were at 10 in 2021. And we're probably now somewhere in the 6 or 7 range. So it's pretty healthy. We are observing that good business plans are getting funded. There is right now, I would say, no shortage of funding for good business plans. It might not be at the terms that the founders want, and it might not be at the terms that people think ought to be provided based on what happened last year, but the funding is there. And this is what's amazing is that there's been this whole ecosystem which has evolved of accelerators, incubators, angel investors, former founders who develop businesses and have since sold them venture capitalists, innovation arms at insurance companies, like every insurance company now has an innovation arm of some sort. Startup is no longer a dirty word. And I dare say it was until about 2016. And I don't see that changing. I do think that perhaps you'll see a natural attrition or change as things go in and out and people reconsider their strategies. But again, nobody's sitting back there saying, you know, we're going to stop all this digitization stuff.
0: It just doesn't make sense. Nobody's saying that. What about disruption? Obviously, that was an early word that we've heard all the time. Every conference, someone got up and says, oh, you know, Uber's the taxi company without any taxis. Airbnb's the hotel company without any hotels. We're going to come up with the insurance company with no capital or whatever it's going to be. I mean, has that all turned out to be hubris or not? Do you think there are some genuinely disruptive things that have happened?
1: Insurance is a slow-moving business, but when it does move, it moves in a very big way. And I think the business has moved in the last five to seven years. Are you going to see businesses claiming to be insurance, but not actually being insurance companies? Certainly, some MGAs have tried to make that case. But the simple fact of the matter is the raw materials of insurance are people, capital, and technology. Those are the three things. There have been enormous advances in technology. There have been tens of thousands of people, it was 55,000 last time I added it up, that are working for insure techs. And capital is what it is, but capital is debt equity reinsurance. And maybe there are some different flavors of that. But the simple fact is, it's very hard to be in this business in the risk transfer value chain without actually having some sort of reinsurance capital. And obviously, there is a lot of speculation right now about how that's going to potentially be impacting young companies. I think the key for young companies is... You have to be prepared to show that you have high quality underwriting. And that is a big change from what we saw three or four years ago, where, again, the people who came into the industry in 2015 and came out of the industry in 2021 were saying, Grow, 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 grow. It doesn't matter. The reinsurance will always be there. I don't even know if they thought about it. But for those people who did and those people who are showing that they can underwrite really effectively, I think the reinsurance will be there. Again, it will be more expensive and that'll have to be reflected in rates. But yeah, you have to have capital. This idea of you can create an insurance company like Uber without any taxis or Airbnb without any hotel rooms, like I just don't think those sort of models work in insurance.
0: We'll, we'll go back to the reinsurance market and how it's going to interact with insurtechs going forward. But before we if we've just declared the death of insurtechs, it's a little bit more dancing on its grave. In terms of an obituary for insurtech, you know, obviously, we're in this risk-off phase with quite sharply increasing interest rates and the cost of capital going up for everybody, everywhere. So- Is it just part of this wider trend that's affecting every riskier business and every capital-hungry business and startup around the world in whatever sector? In InsurTech, do we do something specific? Are there some InsurTech-specific sins that we've committed?
1: Everybody has committed some sort of sin. (laughs) However, everybody has also, I think, pushed the envelope in really important ways to push industries forward throughout the innovation economy. So is InsurTech fundamentally different than any other? The way that i think about it is this we created an index called the hscm public insure tech index it's an index of 21 publicly traded insure tech companies now not all of them describe themselves as insure tech. these are all companies that went public after 2010 who have novel business models differentiated by technology and operate in the insurance sector that index if you compare it to other indices of venture-backed companies that went public over similar time periods has actually performed similarly to businesses outside of insurance. So I don't think that there is much that is specific about insurance. I think that it is a function of a much broader sell-off in risk assets that we've seen in the market. You still got to buy insurance, I and it's compulsory. And look, insurance companies have been around in many cases since 1850 or 1870 or whatever. They've been through the panic of 1873. They've been through the Spanish American War. They've been through the disco craze of the 1970s. (laughs) Like they've been through it all. And so, whatever's happening in the Ukraine and whatever's happening in other parts of the world and with interest rates, like it's all stuff they've seen before in some form or some fashion. And you don't build a great insurance company by changing on a dime because of what was the headline in the Wall Street Journal today.
0: Well, let's go back to that reinsurance market, because the last time I saw you, I was down in Monte Carlo. I was doing a program with all the reinsurance brokers and all the reinsurers that I could round up. And obviously, that was before Ian. And the verdict then was still, it's going to be a very hard market and one of the hardest markets I've ever encountered. And now, of course, post Ian, it's going to be even harder. Do you think there's any appetite now for reinsurers... Not effectively, you're saying, you know, there's only three forms of capital, equity, debt, and reinsurance. And of course, insurtechs, full stack, insurtechs have been leaning quite heavily on reinsurance. Do you think there's going to be any more appetite given the reinsurance market and given the calls on that capital, potentially very profitable business being offered and being declined by reinsurers? Do you think there's any appetite left now to continue with someone whose loss ratio is the wrong side of 100, but with a promise that things may get better, do you just say that that patience is likely to have run out, or do you think you might keep it going for another year or two? I don't know.
1: This is a very broad field, but there are a handful of insure techs whose rate filings have been analyzed fairly extensively, at least in the US. And in many cases, they have been putting up rate faster than incumbents, sometimes by a factor of two to three times. Yep. So if the incumbent is raising 10, The comparison in InsureTech is raising 30. So, InsureTechs, I have observed taking a very significant amount of rate that has, in some cases, quite significantly slowed their top line, which again is probably the right thing. And they have, in many ways, gotten ahead of it. I think there are also InsureTechs who have very good claim systems, who are able to very effectively understand what their exposure is to large loss events. In ways that I believe are actually beating some of the incumbents. But I do have some faith that reinsurers recognize that there is value to digitization. There is value to technology. And many companies are fairly well-funded and are going to be big reinsurance buyers for a long time. And again, we've all been through cycles. You don't get rid of a good customer simply because you're at a bad point in the cycle.
0: Okay. So you think some of these firms are going to come through this eventually? You know, they're going to be having tough days now, but you're optimistic that we're going to have some successes?
1: Because there have been successes out of every previous cycle as well. You you go back to the 1980s, and there are some pretty notable companies that were formed at that point. And in the 1970s, during crisis of the 70s, there were very notable companies that were formed then. There have been good companies that have emerged from every tech cycle as well as every insurance cycle. So some might not work out, but I think some will emerge and they're going to be household names
0: in 10 or 20 years. Absolutely. Here sitting in the UK market, you've got the little red telephone of direct line and that technological innovation of the idea that you could just phone up an insurance company and not have to go to some little broker on your high street or main street, you know, that's a household name in consumer insurance in the UK. So yes, there was a particular revolution around that time as well. So we should see, we will be seeing some direct lines of the future will be on their way, you'd say.
1: Why not? I mean, there's been extraordinary advances in technology across the board. In fact, I added this up recently. I sat down with the chief technology officer of an insurance company and we just drew out all the technologies that you would need in order to build an insurance company, both insurance-specific technologies and then technology outside of insurance, just your core DevOps and cloud and hosting and things like this. And we then analyzed when was each of these companies founded. And what you realize is you could build essentially an entire insurance company with products that have been launched since 2008 or companies have been formed since 2008. So basically in the last 14 or 15 years, that is not something which was possible 10 or 15 years ago. Even as recently as that, if you wanted to start a a young company, you'd have to go out and buy servers and buy hosting and buy a lot of technology or build a lot of technology. Whereas now, like if you want payments infrastructure, you just plug into Stripe and you can have it in a matter of a couple of days. So it is much more efficient to start a business now. It is much faster to start a business. And I'm talking particularly on the consumer and small commercial side. But even on the deep specialty side, you look at the number of companies in London, for instance, that are supporting underwriters who just want to go form an MGA and they want everything else taken care of for them. There are a lot of opportunities to do that, which didn't
0: exist five or 10 years ago. Yes, if I go to the MGAA, this is the UK-based MGA trade body, the whole kind of exhibition hall is full of people who are just providing plug-and-play kind of solutions, and the underwriter can just turn up. Adrian, what you're looking at is innovation, isn't it, really? And you've worked all over. You've worked in reinsurance and walked up and down Lime Street lots of times. How innovative do you think my core listenership's market is? And how innovative is reinsurance? We seem to be always at the back of the chain. We're backing all these innovators, spying with capital, but are we necessarily spying with much expertise and much technological now? So are we always beating ourselves up over not being innovative? But what's your perspective?
1: I think the London specialty market, the reinsurance markets, the Bermuda market, etc., people love to beat themselves up over, particularly data. Our data is horrible, and therefore we can't do any sort of innovation but the simple fact of the matter is there's been $50 billion, which has gone into insurance innovation from venture capital. About 40% of the deals that have been done, so this is by deal count, have had some insurance strategic investment in them. So insurers and reinsurers have absolutely been backing young companies. And about two thirds of the money which has gone into the insurance technology sector has gone into carriers and MGAs. Carriers and MGAs, of course, all have to have some sort of either insurance or reinsurance component to them. So I think the market has actually stepped up in a massive way in terms of supporting innovators and being willing to take the risk that the innovation goes wrong. I think that's something that we should all be very proud of and very happy for. Unfortunately, that doesn't take care of the day-to-day things like needing to have wet signatures and, you know, issues like this, some of which is driven by regulation. And I think many regulators are trying just as hard as everybody else to get rid of some of those sort of sticking points and snags. Obviously, in the London market, there have been several different attempts at digitization, a number of which have not gone particularly well. But I'm actually pretty optimistic that, again, to the point I was making earlier, the technology that many young companies are using didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. And so I don't think that we can take what happened 10 or 15 years ago and say, well, therefore, it's going to fail now because the technology has massively improved. What has not improved where there has been zero progress, I think, is around federating insurers, brokers, reinsurers, and other interested parties in the ecosystem in order to drive towards common goals. And we saw this with B3I, for example. People were very happy to use the bridge once it was built, but nobody wanted to pay to build the bridge.
0: This is the industry-wide blockchain initiative, which has now, I think, since folded, hasn't it? It was sort of set up with big fanfare about three or four years ago, and then now it's, since it's moved on, hasn't it? You know, and
1: in the industry put a lot of money into it and a lot of effort, but there was always a free rider problem. There were always people who said, well, why should I pay to build this? And by the way, is it going to be built the way that I want it, or is it going to be built the way that somebody else wants it? And so there was a lot of parochialism, unfortunately, that was observed in the industry. And this is just among the reinsurers and the carriers. This is without even bringing in the brokers. And that's a whole nother ball of yarn. So unfortunately, the industry, we do come together from time to time and we make efforts. But I think that the industry has to be more willing to set aside parochial interests in order to promote the common interest, which is to deliver better insurance at a lower cost to consumers. And everybody talks about that. But I think that's an area
0: where the criticism is quite deserved that we're not doing all that we should. But generally, you did say at the beginning that you're a bit more optimistic than you have been. Yeah. Uh, You encouraged by some of the things you see coming out of London, your core data standards and some of the real basic building blocks of what we're going to need if we're going to digitize this insurance world.
1: I'm excited about what Lloyds is doing, PPL, the core data record, Blueprint 2.0. Obviously, these are long, complex sort of projects, but I think that's exciting. I think the Lloyds lab is very exciting. We've seen a couple of pretty interesting companies that have emerged from that, that are doing great things around the world. Yeah, so there is definitely progress.
0: And how far off do you think is completely digitized? insurance value chain, you know, going all the way through from main street, all the way to retro and the sort of things that might get involved, you know, the ILS and the capital markets, you know, where some little bit of data can be flowing all the way through into an insurance company, into a treaty, all the way to retro, maybe.
1: So there's two challenges that our industry faces before that's going to happen. One is we are extremely heterogeneous in terms of the types of business that we have, the way that business is processed, the way it's underwritten, the systems that are used, etc. And this starts all the way back at the brokers. I was in a conference with a bunch of independent agents earlier this year, and somebody got up and they were sharing best practices. And they said, you know, the industry classification codes that we use in our brokerage are just horrible. (laughs) And I thought, how are we going to get this right? Carriers were not happy with us, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, the solution that I came up with was I trained our receptionist to look up the codes. And our receptionist is really good at doing that. i was shaking my head because number one, like this is where it starts. Like it starts at the agency, you know, so garbage in, garbage out. But number two, there are great tech solutions which can do that very quickly and easily. When the attitude of the industry is let me train my receptionist to do this versus let me find some great tech that will do this. That sort of attitude is what really has to change before we're going to start seeing real change in a business which is as heterogeneous as the insurance business is. Is that just
0: a cultural difference? Is that just someone who's 20 years younger would think tech first rather than think of just getting the receptionist to do it?
1: Well, the average age of an agency principal in the United States is 55. Yeah, it
0: sounds sounds just like a 55-year-old solution, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, and they're having a hard time getting young people to come
0: into the industry and it's like, okay, well, (laughs) it's probably not surprising if they're the ones who have to do the first five years of their job is classifying risks by some mind numbingly boring manual method of inserting a load of codes.
1: Yeah, and then you're going to put those into an agency management system, which probably hasn't been updated in quite some time, which is a relational database. It's not particularly cognitive. That feeds into some relatively old technology for how the agency and the carrier interacts. And then, of course, some carriers still have mainframes. So there are challenges all along that value chain. And I think that's the second issue, which is we have a complex value chain, which in many places is intermediated. That is different from the bank value chain, for example, where a bank can own the customer relationship basically from start to finish. Yeah. And so banks can be much more effective at pushing digitization because they control the whole thing. Whereas because reinsurers have outsourced their sales force to brokers and primary carriers have outsourced their sales force to independent agents, it's much harder because you have competing interests and you have people who are going to want to do their own thing and you really can't tell them what they have to do.
0: Particularly when they start to think that their way of doing it gives them some kind of competitive advantage and when usually it doesn't, then that's the real problem, isn't it?
1: Or the problem is it
0: actually does, uh, but it's
1: only a competitive advantage
0: in a very narrow sense. Yes.
1: It's not a competitive advantage which actually benefits
0: the consumer in any way. Absolutely. I spend most of my life looking at the wholesale specialty and reinsurance market, i.e., you know, where risk is complex, it's probably large or it's just weird. But whatever it does, it probably crosses a border, even if that's just crossing a state line from one place to another, you know, in crossing into the ENS market, at the very least. In that market, obviously, we always like to think that we've higher up the food chain, we're a bit clever, and we're more bespoke. Everything we do is complicated or weird or difficult and hard to understand or harder to aggregate, and there's less data because there's probably less number of risks, you know, and less of those risks are not so homogeneous as well. And that's often our excuse for not automating what we can automate. So a lot of the people that I talk to, we've got a business like Key, Key Syndicate and Lloyd's, just being given a 50% preemption from $800 million stamped to $1.2 billion. But that really is the exception at the moment, rather than the rule. Most of the people that I talk to are saying, well, no, I'd rather lead business. I would like to turn my underwriters into more sort of bionic underwriters. I don't want them to be algorithmic underwriters. I want my specialist knowledge that these are guys who know all about fish farms and helicopters and whatever else, you know, and war risk and whatever. The huge amount of specialist knowledge. And I'm going to use the tech to perhaps triage their day, send them only the things that we think we've got a good chance of winning so that we don't waste their time, then I'll score the, pre-score the risk, I'll look at some of the things, I'll bring up all of the back data and the satellite imagery and whatever else they might need to do their job. But I'm still going to leave them to do that job manually at the end, but I'm going to enhance them digitally rather than take them over by an algorithm. Do you think that's the right way to do it? Or do you think more things will be automated? And do you think there'll be more algorithmic underwriting as well? And of course, that algorithmic underwriting is not quote and bind, it's follow, yes or no, and what line size? When I
1: came into the industry 10 to 15 years ago, and I saw that the leader of the slip gets paid essentially the same as the follower on the slip, and the leader does a bunch of work in order to understand what's actually (laughs) in the business, and the follower just puts down a stamp, and yet they get paid the same, I said, wait a minute, the value that's being added to this process is very different, so why can't you have both? Shouldn't the leader have access to as much information as they possibly can about how to underwrite the risk, and perhaps even a computer which is going to recommend a particular price, but then you have the human element that gets added onto it to say, does this really make sense? Is this the way that I would do it, et cetera? I think that's absolutely valid. And once someone has done that, or perhaps once two or three people have done it in order to put together lead capacity, if that's what's required, why should anybody else look at it?
0: I suppose, have an algorithm looking at it just to see if it makes sense from a financial point of view that there hasn't been a mistake. And, you know, fat finger errors, maybe you've got a zero in the wrong place, that kind of stuff. I mean, we see those kind of horror stories on trading floors every other day, don't we? We don't want that happening on the floor in Lloyd's, do we?
1: For sure. And there are people who say, well, algorithmic trading has never actually worked, and so it's not going to work this time. (laughs) And I reflect on that and I say, yeah, there are very valid reasons why it hasn't worked. It's very difficult to get right. It takes a lot of effort. But I come back to the point that I made earlier around the incredible advances in technology just within the last 10 years. And I think people underestimate that. I'll give you just one statistic. The power of AI classification models in the 10 years from 2010 to 2020 improved by a factor of 44x.
0: (laughs) But it was from totally rubbish to being quite rubbish.
1: Well, I mean, these are classification models that do things like, is this a picture of a dog or a wolf? Yeah. And back in the day, they would have said, well, that's a picture of a wolf because there's snow in the background. They've gotten a lot, lot, lot more powerful, a lot quicker to run, a lot simpler to run. And the technology to run them has greatly improved. So... I think that this is a little bit like the situation that we had back in 1993 when cat modeling first came out. You know, cat modeling was very much pushing the edges of what was possible from a technology and computing perspective. And there were certainly people who resisted it. And there were certainly issues and still are issues with cat models. But the simple fact is the people who had very good cat models ended up doing very well. And you could say, well, that's an algorithm that just tells you like, that the expected loss is going to be this, and therefore you should price it at this rate online, whatever. I think that this is just a natural evolution of
0: some of the trends that we've already seen in the space. Because obviously, cap models, they may not be perfect, but they're a hell of a lot better than they used to be 30 years ago.
1: And they're a heck of a lot better than somebody who puts pins on a map of Florida <laughs> and says, well, here's where my risk is and relying on payback. you know, Hurricane Andrew blew that up because it blew up half the sector. Yeah. Yep, yep. um, so we have to be much more precise nowadays. We've used algorithms a lot. I think it's just
0: a natural evolution what we're seeing today. And so, do you think we will ever see an algorithmic lead in something quite complicated or something quite specialty? Obviously, we've got algorithmic follow that seems to be doing perfectly well.
1: I think that a lot of leads have algorithms which produce recommendations to them, and sometimes even pricing recommendations. I think actually that's been the case for some time. They just don't talk about it because you don't want to go to the broker and say, well, this is the price because that's what the algorithm said.
0: Because otherwise, the broker would just reverse engineer the algorithm and then start gaming it.
1: Well, that's kind of what happened in cap models, right? (laughs) Uh, People just all started turning down the risk all along the way and using the cap model, which happened to give them the more attractive view of risk. And then, you know, we see how that ended up. So there always has to be a human. The question is, what is the incentive of that human? And can that human maintain pricing discipline and in times when they can't, what do you do?
0: Of course, whilst we might have the perfect algorithm, we don't always have the perfect insurance market. And the temptation for the manager of the algorithm will be to start dialing things down at some point, because otherwise the thing's just going to write zero business. I mean, isn't it always the human element to some of these things? I remember when I was a young broker, my boss told me I had a risk was declined to me and I was a bit upset. And he said, well, don't worry about it. Mark, you know, this person's an underwriter. So underwriters have to underwrite. So at some point someone will underwrite it. Don't worry. And it was a a lesson I learned. And do you think that's the case? We're we're always going to have that human factor because of people want income and they're going to want income. They won't want to turn all the machines off.
1: We're always going to go through up and down cycles, and (laughs) there's always going to be people involved in some way in the process, and those people will have their strengths and their flaws. So yeah, I mean, you, you have to be somewhat commercial. Where this can go wrong is, again, I think people get tempted to start changing the algorithm to adjust down the view of risk in ways that don't make sense. And this is where governance of algorithms becomes really important. And I think an area that regulators are starting to focus on more and more how do we make sure that people aren't adjusting the algorithm in ways that turn down the view of risk that ultimately blow up? And there's not a good answer to that question right now, I don't think.
0: So we need sort of an algorithm to police the algorithm and police the person playing around with the algorithm. And then yes, and just bending the curve to fit the market rather than trying to make the market bend to fit the actual curve.
1: Or even just inadvertent drift. You can set up a model and make it perfect, but machine learning models learn over time. And so Do we understand how the model is learning and what sort of changes are resulting from that? And are regulators or Lloyds or whoever effectively able to understand how these things are changing? I don't know. I think this is a pretty emerging area still.
0: They might learn to be greedy and fearful, both at the wrong times. Let's get back to InsurTech. What are we going to have to call InsurTech? We're going to have to call insurance, innovation, and digitization. We'll have to call it if we're not going to call InsurTech. In the world of insurance that you operate, in the venture world of insurance, in funding new companies that do clever things with insurance.
1: I mean, I guess we need a name for it. But like, I've always hated the term innovation because the first week that I was in this business, somebody sat down with me and they said, look, I want you to understand, shouldn't use the word innovation. That's like the I word. It's like a a bad word because there have been a lot of people who don't really know the business. And by the way, Jones, you don't know the business yet who have come through here and who have talked about innovation and it hasn't worked. So don't talk about innovation. Talk about like how we're going to make the core business run better. That was the advice I was given. And I, I think that was absolutely very sage advice. And it's also advice that I pass on to others. Don't come in and try to like blow things up or change them overnight. This is a business which does move, and when it moves, it moves in a real way, but it's not going to move overnight.
0: So if you can come with a really, really great proposition, really well tested to practically prove to me beyond all reasonable doubt that if you do this, we'll reduce my loss ratio, my core loss ratio by three points, then come and have a conversation. But if not, maybe I'm not that interested.
1: But let's recognize that you can't actually prove that. (laughs) How do you prove that something is going to reduce the loss ratio? Like That's impossible.
0: Because you just don't know. I mean, losses are random events as well. I mean, let's face it. So we don't know. We might just be really unlucky.
1: Risk is constantly evolving in its nature. And so something that may have reduced the loss ratio by three points in a back test might increase it by three points in a going forward test. And there's always the commercial element to it as well. You can't always replicate that exact same portfolio because if you change the price, you're going to get a different type of customer that comes to you. And those customers might have different characteristics that you don't know about.
0: Adrian, now we're in this slightly cooler, is it a more rational investment environment? Does it make it easier for you to operate? Sure hope so. You don't have to compete with people who have got unrealistic expectations or people who have been overexcited or you know, willing to support what, with hindsight, were very frothy valuations. Or as you said earlier, the sort of people who only discovered insurance in 2015 and now have sort of knocked it off their Christmas card list.
1: If the world was filled with crusty old people who sit in the back of Leadenhall Market with a beer in their hand and say, "Ah, yeah, it's never going to work. I've seen that before. It's not going to happen. <laughs> don't even bother. Just keep doing things. We've always done it like we would never advance. And so you need a little bit of that. And you have to respect that viewpoint and understand it. But at the same time, I think the industry needs people who are a little bit crazy. You come in and say, like, gosh, you guys just don't get it. Here's a better way to do it. And the history of the London market actually shows that there are a lot of people who have come along. I think we can all name some great entrepreneurs there who have come along and said, I've got better ways to do this. Um, And in many cases, they've leveraged technology in some form, but not always. I think there's absolutely room for all of these people in the sector. The challenge is keeping things in a little bit of a state of balance and not getting too overenthusiastic with people who are going to spend a lot of money to learn lessons the hard way.
0: And what are the common themes that are getting backing today? Is there anything that successful insurance entrepreneurs, is there anything that they've got in common that is getting them positive feedback from investors?
1: My observation is we are still seeing good companies getting funded. Those companies, what is good? It's a lot more about the characteristics of the people who are involved. We are seeing a much greater emphasis in the market on people who have a little bit of gray hair, who have some insurance expertise, who've been around the block, who can say, you know, I've seen this business for the last 10, 15, 20 years, and I know that there is a better way, and here's what it is. Often they are partnered with a technology person or multiple technology people who say, I can build the technology in order to do that, and I can build a modern, efficient, effective tech stack. They often come with relationships. If they're going to do it as a carrier and MGA, they're often coming with relationships into those markets. So they have people who are known quantities, they're willing to back them, et cetera. We are seeing outside of the carrier MGA space in SaaS, data analytics, et cetera. We're seeing some companies that have actually been around for a little while where perhaps they were not the hottest thing back in 2020, 2021 but who plugged along and actually have built really interesting technology. We're starting to see that those sort of companies are being successful and getting funded. The challenge right now is for companies that got a little bit too caught up in the bubbleishness, who perhaps raised a little too much money at too high of a valuation and spent that money, but don't have what they need to prove that they are qualified for the next round of funding. And we haven't seen a lot of failures yet. We've seen a few, but those are the folks who are probably in for the roughest ride.
0: And is there any particular part of the value chain that's hotter than any other part at the moment? Obviously, you know, looking from my perspective, I've seen so many hybrid carriers, but I wouldn't describe any of them as InsurTechs necessarily. So anywhere within insurance innovation. No, I can't say innovation. I can't say InsurTechs. So I don't know what I'm going to say. We'll have to just say InsurTech for the moment. Insurance we technology or whatever. Insurance technology space. Are they congregating in any particular part of the value chain?
1: Here in the States, we have seen very few direct-to-consumer companies getting funded over the last several years. We are seeing in the states and in other markets as well, much more emphasis on specialty and specialty in a very, very broad definition. So that can mean specialty classes of risk. It can also mean specialty services into insurance. It can mean specialty finance around insurance. There is a a much greater degree of specialization. People say in niches, there are riches. And I think that's true in the insurance business as well. So in order to do these sort of specialized businesses, it does require that sort of gray hair skill and partnering between old people and young people, people who are experienced, people who are inexperienced, et cetera. That's where we're starting to see things. But again, it's much more about the type of people who are involved than it is, I think, the sector, because there's so many sectors in insurance that it's really hard to say, like, people are not focusing on PNC anymore. They're only doing life and health. Like, that's just not true. Like, there's opportunity everywhere.
0: Another one of these buzzwords flying around, perhaps probably the buzzword of the last 12 months, and I'm sure one that you'll want to retire at some point in the future, is embedded insurance. It seems to be a thing that everyone wants to talk about, and I don't really understand what people are talking about when they talk about it. Is that one of these flavor of the month things, or is that something that we should all be taking more note of? What do we really mean by embedded insurance?
1: There's a million definitions of embedded insurance. I think of embedded insurance basically as being not insurance, which is sold via your traditional independent or tied agent channels, and which is not sold via direct response advertising, whether that's a 1-800 number, a red telephone, or an ad on Google. It's not insurance sold by price comparison websites, and it's not insurance that's sold to some sort of lead gen. What it may be is insurance that's sold to Affinity. And of course, Affinity is just about as old as insurance. You know the people in lloyd's coffee shop are probably an affinity group it's point of sale so involved in another product's point of sale it's some other form of non-traditional distribution so distributed via retailer via vertical software company i would put bank assurance in as well you know insurance sold through banks and i would put in insurance which is sold via some sort of non insurance transaction it's kind of a woolly concept but it encompasses a lot of
0: those different things doesn't sound like anything new to me. I mean, everyone knows that you buy a holiday, even the old fashioned travel agent that you walked in and they had a little computer. They still try and sell you travel insurance. And of course, they still do that now with the budget airline. Now you did it on a website. There's always the page with the hire car, the hotel, and there's always the travel insurance as well. I mean, is that embedded insurance? And what's really special about that?
1: Travel is what people think of when they think of embedded insurance first because it's the most tangible and in many ways the most obvious. But take another one. Some of the largest sellers of small business workers' comp insurance are payroll processing
0: companies. Now, that's interesting.
1: Why? Because they have the data. They have the data on
0: who's and getting if you're paid. Especially by. going to rate it on payroll, right?
1: Who these people are. Yeah. I mean, it's all rated on payroll. So yeah. they know what the job descriptions are. They know how much the people are getting paid.
0: If it's been repriced by a big algorithm, then yeah, of course they can do it.
1: Yeah. So they're selling workers' comp insurance alongside payroll services. Because they have better data on what the product is, what the person is, et cetera. There's a vertical software company in the US that does construction management software. You know, they help a general contractor and all the subcontractors to stay coordinated and know who's doing what, when, what's the plan. They record safety incidents and things like that. And they've set up an agency where they're starting to sell insurance.
0: It's going to become more sophisticated, but you're saying some of these people, of course, probably know more about risk than we insurers do. The sort of thing where we might get some massive Siemens turbine that costs $50 million for a power station, then they might embed the insurance in that because they understand everything about it.
1: In some ways, that's just a product guarantee or a product warranty, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. performance guarantee. The turbine's going to produce a certain amount of power. And if it doesn't, then we're on the hook for it. Is that even insurance? In many cases, it's not. That's just the seller adjusting the price based on how well the I suppose it could does. interact
0: with insurance because insurers can get involved. When sophisticated amount of data being shared, an insurer could help, couldn't they? They could help that out. And then that's where insurance does good things, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Here's the challenge. The big challenge is that data is friction. So everybody talks about data and data is the new oil. I think that's another statement that needs to be retired because number one, oil is finite. Data in many ways is infinite. But number two, oil is a lubricant. Data is not a lubricant. Data is a friction, at least at first. Yeah, Because the person or company seeking insurance has to go and produce a bunch of data. Then somebody has to take it in and analyze it and reformat it and do whatever they're going to do with it, run it through an algorithm or run it through a human's brain and spit out a price. That's a lot more frictional than just saying, well, last time it renewed at this price and we're adjusting all the prices by 10%. so Therefore, it's going to go up by 10%. That latter is a much smoother transaction and in many ways is actually much easier to accomplish. But is that really the right thing for the customer? Is it even the right thing for the industry? So the challenge around all of this and around embedded, et cetera, is how do you turn data from a friction into a lubricant? And I think there are people who are doing some pretty interesting things there, but it's going to take some time. Goodness,
0: We'd have to do a whole new podcast on that one, Adrian. I was just having a quick scan of what I plan to ask you. I think I've asked everything and probably quite a lot more. So thank you so much for your time, Adrian. It's fascinating what you're getting up to, and I hope you'll come back on the show and give us an update at some point in the future.
1: Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me, Mark.
0: And obviously, do tell us when you've worked out a new word for insurtech. <laughs> Insurance technology. Well, did we settle on that? It's good enough for now. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Adrian. Thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform.